everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today we are covering another real life monster, none other than Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK Killer. Before we jump into the episode, though, I wanted to ask Joel how your Halloween was. My Halloween was great. Me and my girlfriend just ended up staying home and watching some scary movies and on the what list. What movies did you watch? So we saw The Strangers, then we saw um, Hereditary, uh, Midsummer. I mean, we had a whole montage. I was going to say, on. you watched a whole bunch of scary yeah, movies. It was, but That's, it was a ton of fun. Which was the best one or the one you found the most I th- scary? I, I definitely would say Hereditary. Um, I heard a bunch of crazy things about that movie. And when I saw it, yeah, it was just super scary. Was it like jump scares throughout it or no. was it just like the overall theme was just the, terrifying. the overall theme and it, just how wacky it could be at times and then how it incorporated like this ritualistic demonic possession Interesting. like having to do it hereditary because of the family right like, yeah exactly because yeah. they ended up having to like transfer a, a demon's spirit wow into you know a, a person oh my so. god <laughs> that sounds crazy no i watched the trailer for that and i was like damn this looks like really a really good one unfortunately yeah, um, my wife do? won't watch any scary movies with me so if i want to watch a scary movie <laughs> it's by myself <laughs> generally after she goes to sleep so it Ugh. which just ups the scariness to the next level because <laughs> i'm laying in bed it's pitch dark in the yeah. room and i'm like watching it. <laughs> so no i i didn't really do too much we i went over to a friend's house and they live in a, a neighborhood where kids supposedly trick-or-treat oh and so we you know we got candy and stuff and literally there was like three groups of kids that's all night on halloween wow so i don't know if it was because the pandemic people are still not out trick-or-treating or because it was sunday night this year and so kids were just you know did it on saturday i guess i don't know so it was kind of it was kind of lame but i guess more candy for you guys right Hey, more candy for us. And, you know, hopefully one day when I have children, you know, I can bring back that Halloween spirit strong yeah. and, you know, enjoy all the festivities and decorate my house and, and then you'll scare have, people. Yeah, absolutely. And then you'll have a bunch of scary movies to recommend as well. Yeah. So. There, yeah there you go. <laughs> well, now that Halloween is past us, we are entering the final few months of 2021. It's been a amazing year here at lights out we've had a lot of growth a lot of really cool things happening we are literally weeks away from debuting the new studio yeah finally good god nothing is easy um in podcasting and just in the media biz in general i mean everything is a lot harder there's so many moving parts of things there's so much equipment that has to be ordered and configured and set up which is what joel's been working on uh, for all of our shows here at Mile Hard Media, there's so much going on. So we're getting very close to being able to debut the new studio, which I'm very excited about because, again, it's a totally different vibe, totally different look to it. We're retiring this sign. Unfortunately, uh, it's going to just be there on the yeah. wall off. <laughs> and for those who are wondering, I mean, people are saying just get a dimmer for it. But unfortunately, this is real neon. This, this is, is neon glass neon. And yeah. unfortunately, you can't dim real neon signs. Yeah. So the new sign is led luckily so it is able to be dimmed it's also not literally taking up the entire wall here <laughs> <laughs> i actually yeah. measured this time for the new sign so 
Lots of exciting things happening here at Lights Out. Also, thank you to everybody who purchased merch. The Halloween drop went amazingly. I think yeah. we're almost sold out of nearly everything. So if you haven't checked out MileHardMerch.com and the new collection, go check it out because there's only a few items left in a few sizes, and I'm not sure if we're going to be restocking anything. So if you haven't checked it out yet, again, that's MileHardMerch.com. But with that being said, this episode is brought to you by Simply Save HelloFresh and Stamps. Com. We've got a lot to cover today. Dennis Rader is one of those serial killers that I think is one of the most terrifying because he is somebody who flew under the radar for so long. And the the monsters that hide in plain sight to me are some of the most scary individuals to walk the planet because it could be somebody who seems totally normal, could be somebody in a position or a role within your community that you would never suspect. Yeah of being an absolute monster and that is who Dennis Rader is. So let's go ahead and dive into the very beginning of the life of Dennis Rader. Dennis Lynn Rader was born on March 9th, 1945. He was one of four brothers that grew up in Wichita, Kansas. His parents were both workaholics and hardly had any time to spend with their children. Dennis grew up always feeling alone even with the company of his brothers, Jeff, Paul, and Bill. And he carried this loneliness with him through school, where he never made many close friends. He attended Pleasant Valley Middle School, and when he hit puberty, strange sexual habits began to take hold of him. He noticed that his fetish for bindings and women's underwear weren't in line with the same sexual fantasies that everyone else had. But he kept these things a deep secret. And this was only the beginning of how he separated his public life and his secret life of dark obsessions. One of his first experiences with sexual deviancy began in middle school. One day, one of his teachers humiliated him in front of the class. And so after school, he snuck over to his teacher's house and actually watched her through one of her bedroom windows. As he watched her in secret, he tied a rope around himself, then tightened the knot and orgasmed. Dennis later claimed that this was a pivotal moment in his journey of becoming a monster, and he carried this burden with him into high school. When he became a teenager, he was known as a shy, studious young man who kept mostly to himself. And to those that knew him at a young age, they described Dennis as someone who listened very carefully when spoken to and gave his full attention. Before he would respond, he would think for a long moment before he spoke. His schoolmates always claimed that he had absolutely no sense of humor. Anything he talked about was practical and direct. Dennis attended Wichita Heights High School where his loneliness grew worse and his sexual thoughts only escalated. He would watch women through windows and bind himself with ropes. And that was just the beginning. He developed a fascination with morbid curiosity and extreme violence. He would often sit in the back of the class and fantasize about tying up and raping young women. One of his favorite targets for his sexual fantasies was Annette Funicello, one of the most famous mouseketeers in the Mickey Mouse Club at the time. These thoughts that he had clouded his everyday life, and they made his loneliness even worse. While his classmates concerned themselves with who they were asking to the homecoming dance, Dennis was plagued by thoughts of bondage and murder. His relationship with women became entangled in violent urges. And with no outlet for these urges, he began capturing dogs and cats off of the street. He would take them to hidden locations around town and hang them. 
It was the only way he could release his urges. For now. Through his teen years, he kept his inner demons a secret. He came across to the rest of the world as a polite young man who kept to himself. And he successfully maintained this image throughout high school. After graduating in 1963, Dennis went on to attend two semesters of college in 1965. And although he was always seen as a studious kid, he became a below average student while in college. He quickly realized that college was just not for him, so he dropped out. He then joined the Air Force in 1966 when he was just 21 years old and spent his time there working as a mechanic. All the while, he kept his fantasies hidden from everyone he knew. He spent four years on active duty in the Air Force, and during the course of his service, he received the Air Force Good Conduct Medal, the Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Ribbon, and the National Defense Service Medal. Despite the medals he received, his time spent in the Air Force was easygoing, and he never saw combat. He carried out easy tasks like installing antennas and other radio equipment. A former associate from the Air Force described Dennis as just one of the guys. He just blended in and didn't really say much. During his service, he kept to himself while stationed around the globe. He visited Alabama, Japan, Korea, Greece, and Turkey through the years. And after four years of service, he finished his work with the Air Force in 1970. And not knowing what to do, he returned to Wichita and spent two more years in the Air Force Reserves. While back in Wichita, Dennis also attended church on the weekends. He was a dedicated religious man, and he never missed Sunday Mass. It was here that he met his future wife, Paula Dietz, in 1970. Paula and Dennis had attended the same high school together, but didn't know each other well since they were three years apart. It wasn't until their reconnection in their 20s before the romance began to bud. Paula was from Park City, Kansas, a suburb outside of Wichita, and was only three years younger than Dennis. When they met, she worked as a bookkeeper, and Dennis had just started his work in the meat department at the local IGA Superstore while also studying electronics at Butler County Community College. Their romance burned bright, and things moved fast in their relationship. Paula quickly fell in love, and after only dating for a year, they married on May 22, 1971. Dennis Rader appeared as a friendly man to his family, his friends, co-workers, and neighbors. He perfected his persona over the years and convinced everyone, especially his new wife Paula, that he was an upstanding citizen and a loving family man. But beneath the mask, Dennis Rader buried the sick and twisted man that he really was. Paula had no clue about the inner demons that drove her husband's wild sexual fantasies. For Paula, Dennis was a simple, hardworking man who held down several jobs while working towards a degree. To support his family. After he married Paula, Dennis quit his job at the IGA and began work assembling camping gear for the Coleman Company. And later he became a home security installation technician for ADT Security in 1974. This was the job that brought him one step closer to his sexual fantasies. It was a job that allowed him the thrill of entering other people's homes, and soon his plans began to take shape in his mind and his fantasies were about to become reality. Ironically, the people interested in installing home security systems were allowing the scariest person in all of Wichita into their home. In the 1970s, Wichita, Kansas was a friendly, peaceful city in the heartland of America. Life was simple for the half a million people who lived in the metro area. 
Except for the occasional tornado, there wasn't much to fear. But for the Otero family, that would all change. One day on January 15, 1974, Joseph and Julie Otero were two Puerto Rican immigrants who had moved to Wichita, Kansas, in hopes of raising a family. Joseph grew up in the Spanish Harlem in New York City, where he later became a champion boxer. He met Julie in the same neighborhood after she came to America in a banana boat. They fell in love and married and had their first son, Charlie. Their goal was to live out the American dream, so Joseph joined the Air Force to support his new family. And after his service, he wanted to move to Wichita, the air capital of the U.S. He figured he could easily find work there from his experience, and he later became a mechanic and a flight instructor. They settled into a simple home where Joseph and Julie raised five children, and all was going well in their American dream until Dennis Rader turned it into a nightmare. On January 15, 1974, three children from the Otero family, Charlie, who was 15 years old, Danny, who was also 15, Carmen, who was 13 years old, went to school that day. But their mother and father, Joseph and Julie, stayed home with their two youngest children, Joey, who was nine, and Josephine, who was 11. They lived in a corner house on a busy street near Edgemore Park, and it was a day like any other, until Charlie Otero returned home. Upon arriving at the house, he found the family dog Lucky in the backyard without a leash, and he immediately sensed that something was wrong. He knew his parents had stayed home with his youngest siblings, but the place was eerily quiet when he approached from the backyard. He walked in through the back door and into the kitchen, where he saw his mother's purse turned upside down on the stove. All of its contents were spilled across the kitchen. He called out, and his younger sister Carmen responded, Charlie, come quick. Mom and Dad are playing a bad trick on us. When he walked through the door to his parents' bedroom, he found them both tied up. Their mother, Julie, lay motionless on the bed, staring at the ceiling. Her face was purple, and Charlie barely recognized her. Their father was on the floor with a belt around his neck. The kids ran to call 911, but when they picked up the receiver, the phone line was dead. So they rushed over to their neighbor's house to contact police dispatch. And when police arrived at the scene, they searched the Otero family's home. Julie and Joseph, the mother and father, were pronounced dead in the bedroom. Bruises coiled around Julie's neck, and her eyes stared lifelessly into space. A line of blood ran from her nose across her cheek. The bruises on her neck matched the markings of another person's hands, so police figured she had been strangled to death. Joseph, the father, lay face down on the floor beside the bed. His feet were tied and a bag had been put over his head. When they pulled the bag off, his face was bloated, puffy, and blue, and police believed he had died from suffocation as well. After searching the home, police found two more bodies. To this day, Charlie Otero thanks God for not being the one that found the bodies of his younger brother and sister. Joey, age nine, was found in his bedroom. He was lying face down, and just like his father, his feet were tied and a bag had been put over his head. He had also died from suffocation. But the worst was what they found beneath the house. The police headed down the stairs to the musty basement, and as he turned the corner towards the laundry room, they found Josephine Otero, only 11 years old. She had a rope around her neck, and she was hanging from the basement sewer pipe. Her feet dangled only a few inches from the cement floor. She had no pants on, and her underwear had been pulled down to her ankles. 
Investigators quickly suspected the crime had been sexual, but autopsies revealed there was no evidence of any sexual assault. Despite this, investigators knew that the murders had to be sexual in nature, and that this was clearly the work of a sadist who got a thrill from torturing people. The fact that he had killed them in broad daylight proved two things. One, he was confident not being caught. And two, his plans must have been calculated. He must have stalked the family for some time and memorized their schedules. Police also found the telephone wires had been cut from the outside, and they didn't find any evidence of forced entry. So the killer easily made his way inside with no fear of the victims calling the police. And not a peep was ever heard by the neighbors. Wichita police realized they had a cold, calculated killer on their hands. And soon local news reported the story, and all of Wichita heard about the Otero family murders. Four family members killed in broad daylight didn't sit well for the people of Wichita. They had never seen anything like this in their city before. Many began hiring home security technicians to install security systems in their homes. And Dennis Rader was ready for more customers. After his first slew of murders, Dennis Rader gained confidence by the day. Police had no clue who could have committed the Otero family murders, which stroked his ego more than anything. And after taking a cooldown period of three months, Dennis was ready to kill again. The Otero murders became a distant memory, and Dennis needed his next fix. He set his sights on a young 21-year-old college student named Catherine Bright. Catherine was a recent high school graduate who found a job at Coleman, the same place Dennis had worked for a few years. She was an attractive young woman who loved to sing at her local church on Sundays, and she had just started her college education. And while Dennis was out driving one day, scoping for new victims, he spotted Catherine as she was going into her house. She lived only two miles away from the Otero's house. The moment he saw Catherine, Dennis knew he wanted to kill her. He called these victims his projects, and he had built up a list of several people he wanted to kill. But Catherine was his next. I don't know how to exactly say that. I had many, what I called them projects. They were different people in the town that I followed, watched. Uh, Kathleen Bright was one of the next targets, I guess, as I would indicate. How did you select her? Uh, just driving by one day, and I saw her go in the house with somebody else, and I thought that's a possibility. There was many, many places in the area, um, College Hill, been, they're all over Wichita, but anyway, that's, it just was basically a selection process, worked toward it. If it didn't work, I'd just move on to something else. On April 4th, 1974, Dennis packed a small tool bag and broke into Catherine's house from the front porch. He made his way through the home and hid in her bedroom closet. She arrived home around 2 p.m., but there was one problem. Dennis could hear two voices coming from the living room while he hid in the bedroom. Her younger brother Kevin had joined her. Dennis wasn't expecting company, and he thought Catherine would be alone, but he quickly adapted to the situation, because nothing would stop him from his next kill. So Dennis pulled a handgun from his bag and ran out of the bedroom. He pointed the gun at both of them and told them not to worry. And he made up a story about how he was a wanted criminal and needed a car, food, and money so he could make it to New York City. He promised he wasn't going to hurt them and that he just wanted to rob them. Forcing both of them into the bedroom, he grabbed a bundle of rope from his bag and threw it towards Kevin. He ordered Kevin to bind his sister's hands and feet with the rope which he did without hesitating. 
He then pushed Kevin into a separate room, and Dennis tied Kevin's hands to the bedpost. He then returned to Catherine to ensure her ropes were secure, and then went to the room Kevin was in. When Dennis walked through the door, Kevin broke free from the ropes and dove towards Dennis, but Dennis quickly aimed his handgun and shot Kevin in the side of the head. Dennis shoved him away and his body slumped to the floor. Blood was gushing from his head, so Dennis left him there and returned to Catherine again. He noticed that her bindings were coming loose too, so Dennis had to wrestle her to tighten the ropes. While he was yanking on the rope ends, he heard noises coming from Kevin's room. After he secured her bindings, he went to check on Kevin. But right as he opened the door, Kevin lunged at him, blood streaming from the gunshot wound in his head. But he hadn't died yet. He wrestled Dennis to the floor where they fought each other, and Kevin noticed the second gun that Dennis had hidden in his shoulder holster, which he tried to reach for. But when Kevin reached for it, Dennis blocked the trigger with his finger. And with his other hand, Dennis quickly raised the first gun to Kevin's face and pulled the trigger. Again, he shot Kevin in the head. And again, his body fell to the floor. He went back to Catherine and noticed that, yet again, the bindings were coming loose. Frustrated and angry, he quickly tried to strangle her. But she put up too good of a fight. Dennis knew he was losing too much control over the situation, and things weren't going according to plan. He needed to finish the job quickly. So he pulled out a knife and stabbed Catherine in the stomach three times. Blood soaked into her clothes and her body drooped to the floor. Dennis raised himself from the ground and went back to check on Kevin, but only a spot of blood remained where he had left him. A trail of blood ran from the bedroom to the front door where Dennis knows the front door was wide open. He ran out onto the porch and when he looked down the street, he saw Kevin running away. Somehow he had survived two gunshot wounds to the head. And in fear that the police were on their way, Dennis packed his bag and escaped the crime scene. And when the police and ambulance arrived, they found Catherine on the bedroom floor, blood pouring from her stomach, covering the entire floor. When first responders checked on her, they found that she was unresponsive but still alive. They treated her wounds in the ambulance and raced her to the hospital. Once they arrived, doctors performed multiple emergency surgeries and blood transfusions. Catherine hung on for a bit longer, but eventually passed away later that night. Dennis Rader was gone without a trace, and the only piece of evidence they had was a vague description by Kevin. Kevin had miraculously survived both gunshots to the head, but police thought his descriptions were unreliable due to his injuries. After the murder of Catherine Bright, three men came forward and confessed to the Otero murders. All three were arrested soon after by police. Local newspapers reported the confessions and the people of Wichita were relieved there had been a breakthrough in the case. Unfortunately, Dennis Rader knew all three of the men were lying. And because his ego was everything, Dennis knew he wasn't going to let anyone else get credit for his murders. So in October of 1974, Dennis called a local newspaper and told them to search the public library for a clue. He had left a letter inside of an engineering book, and when the newspaper outlet retrieved the letter, they immediately handed it over to the police. The letter had been written with a typewriter, and it was filled with countless grammatical errors. But within it, he described the Otero murders in gruesome detail, which made the police believe only the actual killer could have written this letter. He took sole responsibility for the Otero family murders, 
and even referred to himself as a monster that couldn't be stopped. He also wrote this in the letter, and it's quoted as saying, Where this monster entered my brain I will never know, but it's here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help, that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. He then promised there would be more murders and that he couldn't stop himself. At the end of the letter, he coined his own nickname, BTK. The acronym resembles how he murders his victims, bind them, torture them, kill them. And not only did he want to give himself a nickname for his serial killer persona, but he also wanted to open up a line of communication with the police. This was how Dennis Rader introduced his game of cat and mouse. The murders weren't just about the thrill of killing anymore, they were a game. The way he taunted the police became just as exciting as the murders themselves. But a game like this is extremely rare for serial killers. Most just want to kill their victims and get away with it so they can kill again. But Dennis wanted to stroke his ego even more. He wanted to prove that he could outsmart the police. After the letter, investigators figured they had a serial killer on their hands, so they ramped up their efforts. They hired more investigators, but right as the case began heating up, it suddenly went cold. The BTK killer went silent. Another cooldown period came to pass. Psychologists compare these cooldown periods to the comedown after a high. The murders were like a drug for Dennis, and the effects would last for some time. But eventually, he needed his next fix. His last kill had been incredibly sloppy and the Wichita police were finally taking BTK seriously. So Dennis knew his next kill needed to be well planned and perfectly timed. It took three more years for BTK to resurface. On March 17, 1977, Dennis carried out the plan that he had been drawing up for months. He found his next project, Shirley Vianne, a 26-year-old mother living with her three young children. As Dennis drove through the neighborhood, he stopped Shirley's five-year-old son, Steve, on the sidewalk. Steve had been walking home from the store with a can of soup. Dennis pulled out a picture of his own wife and son, and he asked Steve if he had seen them, and Steve shook his head in confusion. Dennis told the boy he was a detective and was searching for two people that had gone missing. Steve told him he didn't know anything and that he needed to get home to his mother. She was sick and needed the soup he had bought from the store. So he turned around and headed home. Later in the day, after Steve had returned home, he heard a knock at the door. When Steve answered the door, Dennis stood there in a tweed jacket and sunglasses. He reminded Steve that he was a detective and told him that he needed to come inside because it was official police business. And not knowing any better, Steve let him on in. And Dennis carried his bag inside and set it on the floor. Once inside, he noticed two other children, Bud and Stephanie, in the living room watching TV. He told them not to worry as he switched off the TV and closed the blinds. Dennis reached for his holster and pulled out a handgun. And one of the children screamed. After hearing this, Shirley rushed into the living room. She wore a robe and her hair was a mess. Her nose was red and sweat covered her forehead because she was visibly sick. When she spotted the handgun, she begged Dennis not to harm the children, and as he held the family at gunpoint, he forced the children into the bathroom. And as they moved through the house, Dennis told Shirley that he had a problem with sexual fantasies. He said he was going to tie her up, and if she didn't cooperate, he would tie up her children too. Once he got all the children into the bathroom, he slammed the door. 
As he kept his gun pointed at Shirley, he forced her to move one of the children's beds in front of the door. They barricaded the kids inside and Shirley told the children to not come out of the bathroom, no matter what. Dennis then took Shirley into one of the bedrooms and began binding her hands with rope. Shirley struggled, but her illness had weakened her. She could barely fight back. And as Dennis tightened the rope, Shirley turned her head to the side and vomited all over the floor. Whether from sickness or fear or both, Shirley threw up the same soup that Steve had given her earlier in the day. Dennis told her to stay put as he went and filled a glass of water in the kitchen sink. He sat down next to her and tried to pour water into her mouth so she could drink. He comforted her for a moment before continuing his bondage fantasy. He then tied her feet to the bedposts and worked his way upwards, winding the rope around her body. He gathered the rope around her neck and tied it in a loop. As Shirley screamed in fear, her children banged on the bathroom door, and Dennis threatened to shoot them in the head if they didn't shut up. And for his final act, with one hand he pulled at the rope around her neck with every last bit of energy, and with his other hand, he began to masturbate. He continued until Shirley's body went limp, and the tension in her muscles released, and her body wilted towards the floor. When he was done with her, he picked up the body and placed it on the bed. And even though Shirley was dead, Dennis wasn't finished. He grabbed another set of rope and headed towards the bathroom. The children screamed for their mother, and just as Dennis began moving the bed frame from the doorway, the telephone rang. Dennis knew that if nobody answered, it would look suspicious and there was no way he was going to answer with children screaming in the background. So he packed up his bag and ran out of the house. The children eventually escaped through the bathroom window and ran to their neighbors for help. When the police arrived, they found Shirley tied up in the dramatic position BTK had perfected. They also found a pair of underwear with semen stains beside her. When they asked the children for a description of the man, they weren't much help. All they could say was that he was a white man around mommy's age, and he carried a bag with him. With nothing to go on, Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemonyan had to make a move. He was on the fence about releasing information to the public, and as far as they knew, the Wichita murders were unrelated. The public didn't know there was a serial killer on the loose. On the one hand, it would spread panic, but on the other hand, they might be able to get some leads from the public but in the end, he decided against it. He hoped communication with BTK would continue if he didn't give him public credit for the murders. He knew from the previous letter that BTK cherished his ego more than anything. He sent the previous letter because he wanted the credit for the Otero family murders, so Richard pushed his luck and hoped another contact could be made with BTK. Unfortunately for Richard, though, the next contact with BTK wasn't the type he was looking for. On December 9, 1977, Dennis decided to give the police a call at 8.20 a.m. On his way to work for ADT Home Security, he found a local payphone near a convenience store. And as he reached in his pocket for change, he realized he didn't have any. So he went inside the store and grabbed a few quarters from the clerk. He returned to the payphone and dialed 911. Unknown to Dennis, police dispatch had started using a tracking system for phone calls, 
and they traced the call to a payphone outside of a convenience store in town. A police officer arrived at the payphone within two minutes of the call, but the telephone dangled from the cord and the area was deserted. They had literally missed BTK by seconds. Meanwhile, two other officers drove to the address the caller had given, and after inspecting the outside of the house, they noticed the phone line had been cut. Knowing BTK's methods, the officers knew what this meant, and they immediately realized what they were going to find inside. Nancy Fox was a 25-year-old woman who worked as a secretary during the day and a jewelry clerk at night. She was an intelligent, hard-working woman who tried to make ends meet. And as police entered the home, they found Nancy in the all-too-familiar bondage position. She was face down on the bed, and her feet were bound. Her face was blue, and a black bruise ran around her neck where she had been strangled with a leather belt. Her underwear were wrapped around her ankles, but again there was no evidence of rape. On the bed beside her, there was a nightgown with streaks of semen across the fabric. BTK had gotten away with another murder, and what he later called the Project Fox Hunt, and even taunted the police with a phone call for the first time. Clearly, the police chief's strategy hadn't paid off. He thought if BTK kept up the communications with police, his game of cat and mouse would interest him more than his murder spree. But with the death of Nancy Fox, this clearly wasn't the case. On top of this, BTK sent a poem to the Wichita Eagle Beacon newspaper two months after the murder titled, Oh, Death to Nancy. They didn't publish it, but they handed it over to the police. And the last lines read, And finally I'll close your eyes so you can't see. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me. BTK Ten days after sending the poem, Dennis had noticed that the local news hadn't published his writing like he thought they would. So he sent a letter to one of Wichita's leading television stations, KAKE-TV. In the letter, he confessed to killing the Otero family, Shirley Vianne, and Nancy Fox. And he asked them how many more times he had to kill so he could finally make the news. The letter made it clear to the police that BTK thrived under publicity. He wanted to become a spectacle across the nation so he could feed his ego. It was no longer just about the sexual fantasies or the game of cat and mouse. It was about building a national legacy. After the death of Nancy, the Wichita police had their hands tied. They had no solid leads, and if they didn't release BTK's information to the public, he would continue killing. So they finally decided to go public. On February 10, 1978, Wichita police revealed that their city had a serial killer on the loose. Panic spread throughout the entire town. And now everyone was aware that a deranged pervert had been hiding inside women's homes, tying them up and murdering them. And they were at seven victims and counting. BTK had successfully become Wichita's boogeyman, and that's precisely what he wanted. Another year went by, and BTK went silent. Another cooldown commenced. But on April 27, 1979, BTK reemerged from the shadows. He began stalking a 63 year old woman named Anna Williams. He knew she lived alone and looked like an easy target. He tracked her weekly schedule and knew that she went out with friends to play cards every Friday. So on April 27th, he watched Anna leave her house with his bag in hand. 
he followed his usual plan. He cut the telephone wire in the backyard, snuck in through a basement window, and waited quietly in the bedroom. Most Fridays, Anna was only gone for a few hours, so he waited for her return. He gripped his handgun and his rope and paced back and forth. Hours passed, and the sun had gone down, and Dennis thought Anna would walk in the door any minute, but she never came. He waited, and he waited, but Anna never came home. He eventually lost his patience and left the house. By a stroke of luck, Anna Williams had spent the night at her daughter's house instead of coming home. And when she finally arrived home the next day, she noticed the telephone was dead and the basement window had been broken open. She had narrowly dodged becoming BTK's eighth victim. And since BTK failed his next project, he did the only thing he could. He made contact with the police. He sent another letter and a poem saying that Anna would have been his next victim. He even delivered a scarf he had stolen from her house, as well as a drawing of his fantasies. He depicted Anna tied up and strangled on her bed. When Anna found out about this, she was so shocked that she ended up moving out of Kansas altogether and never returned. And as for BTK, he vanished for years. Before we continue, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. So with no leads on the BTK killer, local police were at a dead end. Almost seven years had passed since the death of Nancy Fox, and the BTK case was at a complete stop. In 1982, the federal government started the Violent Criminal Apprehension Project, and by 1984, they had gathered enough resources to send FBI agents to Wichita. And once they arrived in town, they started working with local police. Eight officers were put on the BTK case full-time, and they named the task force Ghostbusters. And for nearly two years, they searched through all police reports, letters, and physical evidence. They even conducted one of the first series of DNA testing in history, attempting to match the DNA of the semen found at the crime scenes to any suspects in town. But they mainly focused on the letters, as they believed the letters and poems were the keys to unlocking the case. As they dissected each letter, they realized the letters weren't original. They were copies of the original typewritten letters. Figuring out what typewriter BTK used was nearly impossible. Still, with the help of Xerox Corporation, they identified the brand of the copier, the paper, and the toner that had been used. They zeroed in on two copy machines in town. One was in Wichita State University, and the other was in the public library. The copier at the public library stood only a few feet away from where BTK had hidden his first letter in an engineering book. Both copiers were used by hundreds, possibly thousands of people, and nothing came of this wild goose chase. In the end, the FBI was no closer to catching BTK, and by the end of their two years, the investigation was shut down. As for Dennis Rader, he became a compliance officer for Park City, Kansas the suburb just outside of Wichita. He loved this position of authority, and he played the part well. He wrote people tickets for not following city code if their grass was too tall or their dog was off a leash. He was known to be an enforcer and rarely let people off the hook. He even was known to shoot dogs with tranquilizers who were off the leash on public property. 
Alongside this, his local church elected him as president of the church council. His neighbors always had a high opinion of him, and he also spent his time as a Boy Scout leader for his son's local troop. He had successfully built the persona of a stand-up citizen, while his BTK persona hid in the shadows. His murder spree declined, but he could never shake his twisted sexual fantasies. Even in his off years, he still had to find ways to fulfill his desires. So during the Boy Scout campouts, Dennis would pack his collection of bondage ropes, a photo camera, and a set of his victim's underwear. In the early morning hours, Dennis would leave his tent and sneak into the woods when everyone was asleep. Once he found a hidden spot in the forest, he would dress in his victim's underwear and bind himself with ropes. He would pose in various positions, the same way he often posed his victims. And he would wrap the rope around his neck or put a bag over his head. He'd also wear the mask of a woman and place black duct tape over his mouth. Sometimes he would even dig a shallow grave and lie down in it. And no matter the position, he would set up his camera on a tripod and photograph himself. He would do this on almost every camp out, but one time he had tied the knots too tight. He had strung himself up to a tree branch and he couldn't break free. In the middle of the woods, wearing women's underwear and a bag over his head, he had trapped himself in his own perverted fantasy. Maybe his time spent in the Boy Scouts made him too good at tying knots. He began to panic as the morning hours carried on, and he knew the rest of the Boy Scout troop would be awake soon, and they would come searching for him. And if anyone found him like this, he knew his life would be over. Eventually, after wriggling around, the knot slipped loose, and he freed himself from the ropes. And from then on, he was much more careful about his knots, but he would never stop performing his sexual fantasies. Not even the threat of getting caught could stop him, if anything, the threat made him want to do it even more. During his leadership with the Boy Scouts, his local church, and working as a compliance officer, Dennis hadn't murdered anyone for nearly eight years. Although the birthday of his son Brian is unknown, his daughter Carrie was born in 1979, which would explain why his last known attempt to murder Anna Williams occurred the same year. But after eight years of not killing, he couldn't take it any longer. The bondage experiments in the woods just weren't cutting it. He needed the real thing again, so he began stalking a 53-year-old woman named Maureen Hedge. He called her Project Cookie. Maureen was a kind, gentlewoman. She was a widow, and Dennis knew she lived alone. On the night of April 27, 1985, Dennis excused himself from a Boy Scout meeting, saying that his head hurt, and he needed to take some medicine. He walked to his car that was parked near a bowling alley, and before he took off to Maureen's house, he figured he'd need a good alibi. So he went inside the bowling alley and ordered a beer. He swished the beer in his mouth and intentionally spilled a bit on his shirt. He wanted to create the illusion that he was drunk, and he had been at the bar for a while. He then called a cab and stumbled towards the car when it arrived, pretending to be intoxicated. He told the driver to take him back home to Park City, and when he made it into the neighborhood, Dennis asked if the driver would let him out. He said he needed some fresh air. He ended up only being a few houses away from his home. Maureen Hedge was actually a neighbor, and he had kept a close eye on her for several weeks. He spotted her car in the driveway, which was odd, and he knew her schedule well, and that she wasn't supposed to be home yet. But that wasn't going to stop him. Like muscle memory, he began the process the same way, just like old times. 
He snuck into the backyard and cut her telephone line, and he noticed the back door was unlocked, so he snuck inside. But once he crept around the house, he saw that no one was home, so he had to play the waiting game inside of her bedroom. Not much had changed over the past eight years, and Dennis set right back into his old ways. Some time passed when a car pulled into Maureen's driveway, and Dennis got excited and peeked out the window. But he noticed that Maureen wasn't alone. She got out of the car with another man, so Dennis fled to the bedroom closet. They came inside, had a chat, and eventually said their goodbyes. Dennis waited patiently until the man left, and Maureen fell asleep in her bed around 1 a.m. Now was his chance. He didn't bother with any ropes or tape, as those would only hold him back. He left the closet, but noticed the room was too dark to see anything, so he crept his way over to the hallway and turned on the bathroom light. And just when the light came on, Marie noticed that someone was in her house. She began screaming at the top of her lungs, but Dennis quickly lunged towards Marie, jumped on her bed and wrapped his knuckles around her throat. She could barely understand what was happening before her life quickly faded away. Dennis squeezed as hard as he possibly could, veins pulsed from her forehead, and her eyes bulged in terror. But soon the light left her eyes. It was quick and easy, and Dennis proudly hovered over her dead body. But the night wasn't over for Dennis. He wouldn't let his first murder, after eight years, go to waste. So he stole her car keys, dragged her body to the trunk of her car, and drove off. He took her to the Christ Lutheran Church not far away, and since he was president of the church council, he had all the keys to the building. In a hurry, he retrieved Marine from the trunk of her car and took her inside. While there, he placed her dead body in one of the rooms and covered her eyes with a cloth. He angled her lifeless body in various bondage positions and took several photographs. When he felt his needs had finally been satisfied, he grabbed her body and dumped it on the side of the road. He murdered her on April 27th, but her body wasn't discovered by police until May 5th. And by that time, her body had already begun to decompose in the ditch on the side of the road. After his first taste of murder in nearly a decade, Dennis wasn't going to stop after just one bite. By September of 1986, he had found his next project. A young 28-year-old named Vicky Wagerly. He had often wandered around her neighborhood and stopped by her house. She played piano so he would lurk outside listening to her music. After tracking her schedule, Dennis knew when to strike. So on the morning of September 16, 1986, Dennis disguised himself as a telephone repairman with a worker's helmet and a briefcase and knocked on Vicky's door. He told her there was a problem with her telephone and he had been sent to fix it. Vicky let him inside and he made his way over to the home phone. And with scissors, he cut the phone line and turned around to face Vicky. He pulled a handgun from his holster and aimed it at her. It was then that he noticed a toddler had been sitting on the living room floor. He then forced Vicky into the bedroom where he told her he was going to tie her up. But when he got his ropes out, she fought back. While defending herself, she cut Dennis with her nails, and he bled from his arms and face. But after a short scuffle, he overpowered her. He took a pair of nylon pantyhose and began strangling her. And he felt the same release of ecstasy that he had all those years ago when he watched his middle school teacher from outside her window. And as usual, he wouldn't leave without binding Vicky and placing her in different positions. It was a ritual he wasn't going to pass up, even though he would have preferred a live victim. 
he moved her around, fixed her clothes, and began photographing her dead body. When he was through taking pictures, he heard the dogs barking out in the backyard. He also noticed that the windows were open, and he figured the commotion had caused a lot of noise, so he needed to leave as quickly as possible. He took the car keys from the kitchen and stole Vicky's car that had been sitting in the driveway, and as he backed the car out and headed down the street, Dennis didn't realize he had missed Vicky's husband by minutes. Bill Wagerly was on his way home when he thought he saw Vicky's car traveling in the opposite direction, but he couldn't identify who was in the vehicle. And when he got to his house, the front door was wide open. His toddler sat alone in the living room, and when he called out to Vicky, there was no response. He found her on the floor beside her bed. He rushed to call an ambulance, thinking she was still alive. But doctors declared her dead after arriving at the hospital. The only thing missing from the house was Vicky's driver's license. Bill Wagerly quickly became the prime suspect in the case, even though he pleaded with investigators, and it took months for them to realize that he wasn't the murderer. But just like all the other crime scenes that the BTK killer left behind, the phone line was cut and the victim was strangled. But somehow, investigators missed this obvious trail. And in a bit of irony, it was this crucial misstep by investigators that would eventually lead to BTK's downfall. After his final victim in 1991, a 62-year-old woman named Dolores Davis, Dennis finally retired from his serial-killing lifestyle. He chose an older victim because she was easier to overpower, and after his last wrestle with Vicky Wagerly, he realized he was getting older and no longer had the strength to deal with younger victims. Vicky had scratched him up pretty bad, so his final hurrah would be an easy one. He followed his old playbook and easily tortured and strangled Dolores Davis with her own pantyhose. But instead of leaving her at the crime scene, he took pictures of her in the woods and dumped her body beneath a bridge in Sedgwick County. His last murder was simple and straightforward, and he promised himself it would be his last one. And after this, for over 20 years, Dennis went into hiding. Investigators had connected all of his murders except for one. They never connected the dots between BTK and Vicki Wagerly. And this drove Dennis to the brink of insanity, as he was obsessed with getting credit for his kills. And after all this time, they never gave him credit for Vicky. So in 2004, 30 years after he began killing, BTK resurfaced one last time. He needed the world to know that he killed Vicky. So on March 19th, he sent a letter to the local newspaper, and within the envelope, he placed three photographs of Vicky and a copy of her driver's license. The return address belonged to a fake name, Bill Thomas Kilman, which had the initials BTK. No serial killer in history has ever resurfaced after 20 years of silence. Dennis could have easily crept into a quiet life, but his ego got the best of him. In a letter to police, he asked if his writings could be traced back to him if he sent them on a floppy disk. The police lied and said a floppy disk would be secure. And this minor oblivion to modern technology would ultimately lead to the capture of BTK. On February 16, 2005, Raider sent a purple floppy disk to KSAS-TV in Wichita. The police's computer forensic team inspected the disk, and they were able to recover metadata embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word file. 
and the data included the words Christ Lutheran Church, where Dennis had been president of the council. And the document was also marked as last modified by a username named Dennis. A straightforward search revealed that Dennis Rader was on the church council, and to add more evidence to the case, investigators searched for DNA evidence. Not only did they have BTK's DNA from the semen he left behind, but they also collected skin from underneath Vicki Wagerly's fingernails. Although her fight might not have saved her life, the scratches she gave to Dennis led to a DNA match. Around 3,000 men had been swabbed in Wichita, one of the largest DNA sweeps in history, but BTK wasn't one of them. Investigators then got a warrant to test the DNA of a pap smear from Dennis's daughter Carrie, and the DNA showed that Carrie was a family member of BTK, and the rest was history. Soon after, investigators tracked BTK down as he was traveling in his vehicle and quickly arrested him on February 25, 2005. Afterwards, police searched his home and they uncovered writings, photos, and artwork of his victims. He had outlined women's bodies from magazines and drew ropes around their bodies. They also found women's underwear in the bag he used to carry his bondage tools. He was charged with 10 counts of murder, and he later confessed to all 10 and pleaded guilty. And during his court hearing, he described each murder in gruesome detail with no remorse. If anything, he was finally relieved that he now owned all the credit for the murders. And there is literally a 45-minute video on YouTube, and we've played some clips from it here today in this episode. But you can watch the full 45-minute confession and just see how disturbing it is to hear him say all these things that he did to all these women and not have a care in the world. And it's just so matter-of-fact about it. It's so chilling. The judge sentenced him to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years. In his long-winded sentencing statement, he spent 30 minutes on the stand. And rather than apologies, his statement came off as one last performance where he could take center stage and milk it for as long as he could. Atrocious crimes I've committed as continued as the Cedric Kennedy as a monster. It brought the community, my family, the victims, dishonor, and it's all self-centered as a, what you could call, I would call a sexual predator. His wife, Paula Dietz, was granted an emergency divorce from Dennis Rader after his conviction. And since his sentencing on August 8, 2005, Dennis has suffered from a few health issues, including scoliosis, a painful and sometimes disabling curvature of the spine. He claims he can't stand on his feet for very long without immense pain. He also had a stroke in 2018. However, he is still alive today in a solitary confinement at El Dorado Correctional Facility. He's been granted privileges such as TV, radio, and magazines, and prison staff have always reported good behavior. The Dennis Rader disguise of a stand-up citizen persists even in prison, but anyone who knows Dennis Rader, the serial sexual sadist, knows that his inner demons are waiting in a dark bedroom closet, ready to lurch from the shadows at any moment. The question remains... Was Dennis Rader born to become a sexually sadistic murderer? Dennis Rader's attorney hired a psychologist, Robert Mendoza, to conduct an evaluation on Dennis, but they quickly realized that a plea of insanity wouldn't have worked. After Dennis pled guilty, 
Robert Mendoza conducted an interview in hopes of shedding light on why Dennis Bound tortured and killed his victims. He diagnosed Dennis with narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. He noted a grand sense of self and a desperate need for attention. There is no known trauma that occurred in his childhood that explains why he did the things he did, which might suggest that Dennis Rader was simply born this way. Like he said in his letters, where this monster entered my brain I will never know. In his continuous letters to the outside world, Dennis refers to his current self in first person, but refers to his past self as BTK, as if he's separating the two people. He has even claimed that he was possessed by two demons when he committed the murders. He calls them Batter and Factor X. Batter was his first scapegoat. He described the demon as a frog-looking dragon. And Factor X, he has claimed, was the real demon that made him commit the murders. But as a narcissist, his ego still pushes him to claim responsibility for the heinous crimes he committed. And he continues to believe that society owes him a debt for not killing more. To this day, his ego feeds off of the fan base that collects his artwork and sends him letters in prison. One of the few close people in his life that kept in touch with him through letters was his daughter, Carrie Rawson. His wife, Paula, sent a letter or two, but quickly cut all contact and disappeared from the public eye. As for his son, Brian, not much is known. What we do know is that he was an Eagle Scout and went on to serve in the Navy by the time his dad was convicted. He's also stayed out of the public eye since then. But Carrie Rawson tried her best to come to terms with the fact that her father was BTK. She tried to learn how to forgive her dad, if it was even possible. Growing up, she had mostly fond memories of him, and she and the rest of her family had no idea what her father was doing in the shadows. When the truth about her dad came to light, she realized she had been lied to her entire life. The anguish she went through after her dad referred to his family as pawns in his game during a sentencing statement has stuck with her to this day, and she couldn't believe her own father thought of his family like that. She's tried her best to stay in contact with her dad, but their back and forth eventually came to an end. He began sending her drawings of animals with gaping mouths, and even wrote a letter to the Wichita Eagle newspaper telling them that his daughter reminds him of himself. He compared her to himself by saying that she used the media to tell her story, just like he did when he was writing letters to the local news outlets. On top of all this, BTK's fans had begun screenshotting Carrie's activity online and sending it to her dad, as well as messaging her that her dad is a quote-unquote great guy. After she published her book, A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming, her dad placed his signature over hers on a copy that was sent to him by a fan. In the end, Carrie got a no-contact order against him, and she realized he was a complete narcissist and that he was never going to change. Even in prison, his desperate need for attention exceeded everything else in his life. The man who she knew as a loving father was only an elaborate disguise for the selfish, sadistic man beneath the mask. And that is where the story ends with BTK. He now sits in prison awaiting his the day he dies. And that's it. But one thing we can do is remember those who lost their lives to this horrific monster. 
I'm going to go through and just say their names because I feel we owe it to them to pay our respects. There was Julie Otero, Joseph Otero, Josephine Otero, Joseph Otero Jr., Catherine Bright, Shirley Vian, Nancy Fox, Maureen Hedge, Vicki Wagerly, and Dolores Davis. Honestly, don't know how I feel about all this. I feel that the punishment wasn't severe enough for for Dennis. I don't feel that he, you know, life in prison, but yet he gets magazines, TV, and it seems like he honestly enjoys being in prison. Yeah, it seems like he got everything he ever wanted yeah, from all this. Right, he's living out his wildest fantasies even in prison. Yeah. Because he's getting the attention that he wants. He's got fans now, which is just sick. Yeah. That there's people that are fucking fans of serial killers. I don't understand that at yeah, all. Me neither. That there's people that write to these people and keep their spirits up. It's just like, this person doesn't deserve any of that. It's just one of those. I'm like, God, you know, is it really better to keep him alive? Because it seems like he's completely fine with that. He's living yeah. out, you know, the way that he wanted to getting all the credit for his crimes i mean the fact that he got to be up on the stand for 30 45 minutes talking about what he did is just honestly crazy yeah i feel like that must have been absolutely horrific for the families that were likely sitting in that courtroom listening to him talk about how with meticulous detail from start to finish what he did to each of them and like he was proud of it and with no remorse yeah i mean really really terrifying honestly that he was able to evade capture all these years. I think today, if somebody were to do this, it'd be much harder. Obviously, DNA is, you know, yeah. matching has gone come a long way and being able to track people down that way probably would have happened way faster than it did. And just, you know, a lot of people do have security systems in their homes, which would you know, if you have if you leave the house and you arm your security system and somebody breaks in, you know, it's gonna they're not gonna be able to hide out inside your home. But the fact that he did that's just horrifying i mean yeah. i can't even imagine i mean i feel like that's like everybody's worst nightmare is like come home and somebody's just waiting for you hiding in your closet yeah. like while you're sleeping to get yeah. attacked like that's terrifying yeah i mean he's a, he was really a really a brutal really a brutal individual yeah. and he let his sexual fantasies get the best of him yeah i mean there was no again like was he born to kill it seems to me that maybe he was i mean yeah. sometimes i think Maybe some people have this predisposition due, I mean, due to, I don't know if it's just something that's passed down to them or it's some sort of genetic quirk that happens mm-hmm. or just maybe the way the guy's wired. I mean, maybe his brain development just wasn't all there and caused him to have sort of these sadistic thoughts and fantasies from a young age. I mean, he was killing animals, choking them really, really young. So it's like, where did he get that idea to do that? Where did he, where did these thoughts even come from in the first place? And it seems like, as far as we know, there's not like a source for that. No. And like with a lot of serial killers, either they're introduced to killing or they witness killing at a young age. Um, and that sort of sparks something or they're abused or there's some sort of traumatic event they go through that sort of creates that rage and anger inside of them to want to kill and harm others. But for him it just i don't know there's not I, as far as i can see there's not something one thing to pinpoint 
that leads us to down this path that he went like it just seems like this was something that developed early on and it just he you know he tried to i mean he didn't really try he went through these urges and slowly but surely realized that in order to satisfy these urges he needed to up up the ante and you know eventually led to killing people because that was sort of the ultimate thrill for him i mean it's just crazy to think that there's human beings even today that possess this, this these sick fantasies and like that's what they want to do they want to do these sick things to people it's just it's really hard to wrap your head around honestly that you know there's people out there today that think and do these things obviously now it's definitely harder to be a serial killer i feel like but it certainly does still happen so and in a sense um with dennis being in solitary confinement for the rest of his life like rotting away is kind of like more more of a punishment than sure the death penalty and i get that like i get that being especially solitary confinement i mean if he was in general pop they'd he'd be killed yeah. by now. Somebody would have killed him by now. And that's where I'm like, throw him in general population. Let him, let him like fend for himself. Mm-hmm. Like he, he took all these people's lives and they never had a fighting chance. Right. Why not let him have the same yeah. experience? You know what I mean? Rather than, because ultimately being in solitary confinement is protecting him True. and his safety. Yeah, it sucks to be alone in a room all day, but he also has entertainment He's got TV and, mm-hmm. you know, he's got ways to occupy his mind. Like, yeah. And he's, it's seeming that like guards are saying he has good behavior and he's just kind of like this model prisoner. It's just like, what kind of punishment is that at the True. end of the day? It's yeah, like, that's I feel point. like if you're, I feel like serial killers just deserve a whole nother level of punishment. Eye for an eye type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I just feel that's just my personal opinion. I mean, I think everybody's, everybody's entitled to what they think. But I think if you take the lives, especially, uh, take the life of anybody, but take the lives of multiples of people and do the things that serial killers do often torture and cause people to have, mm-hmm. you know, cut their lives short in these horrific ways. I feel like, you know, you should experience the same thing. So you can maybe have that last minute realization of like, oh my God, what did I what actually I do? Doing? And maybe yeah. that might actually teach them a lesson or allow them to come to the realization of the harm that they inflicted on others yeah obviously for somebody like dennis who's a narcissist and mentally potentially mentally ill maybe they will never have that moment but at least from a victim standpoint i feel like if we were to ask the victim's families what they'd want i'm sure it'd be a much harsher sentence yeah or you know like that he tortured these people does he deserve to be tortured and that's a huge debate and yeah, you know it it's hard to say where you know if that's something viable or obviously it's not something that really exists in in uh, our criminal justice system right. but again like general pop would be torture for him oh yeah like put him in you know with all the rest of the, and let him fend for himself there and see what happens mm-hmm. and the fact that that he just went straight from admitting to all the murders and then being straight into solitary confinement where he's been ever since. And now he's lived out his, his whole life. He's still alive. That's crazy. And just living out, you know, knowing that he's got fans and yeah, it's just sick. Honestly, I think it's, I think it's, I just don't think that that's justice at the end of the day, but 
You'll have to let me know what you think about this. Do you think he deserved a harsher punishment for his crimes? Maybe there's even more victims that we don't even know about. I mean, it's very possible serial killers. But again, with Dennis, I think he would have admitted it. He would have confessed and probably told us that there's more. So as far as we know, it was, you know, these 10 victims that I mentioned earlier. But with that being said, we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. If you enjoy Lights Out Podcasts, make sure you're subscribed on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. We're always looking for ways to improve the show. But until next week, Lights Out, everybody. <laughs>